I realize that reading passages like this in Scripture, these verses that we just read, it may, for some of you, already caused your blood pressure to elevate a little bit. Uh, we, we, when we hear the S word, submit, particularly in the context of marriage, or you have this seeming comparison between a slave-master relationship and a husband-wife relationship. I mean, who wants a marriage that's like a servant-master relationship? I don't. And, then, and so we, we get a little anxious. We see these exhortations about appearances, no braids and no jewelry and, and uh, certain type of clothing and calling your husband Lord. Um, I mean, I, I've told Brooke before, sweetheart, you are free in the privacy of our home to call me Justin. But when we're in public, you need to say that I'm your Lord. Um, no, I'm just joking. But... Um, if you're a guest with us today, we are thankful you're here, and, 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 and I, I want you to know we're, we're working our way systematically through this letter of First Peter, and so it's not like we, um, we're on some crusade about submissive wives or something like that, and we're going to get to the husbands next week, but we're dealing with this in the course of our ongoing study, and so sometimes this section of First Peter and other passages like this in, in Scripture, they, they kind of bring these negative, visceral reactions uh, from some, and I think for different reasons. Uh, one reason is that these have been misunderstood and, and, and these passages have been misrepresented. They've been twisted and distorted and misused by some in, in ways that ha- have, have been to support uh, really misogyny or even abuse of wives. And so it, it, it can, they've been used against women in general, but in why, against wives in particular. And so that, that's one reason we, we, get, we have these negative reactions, I think. Also, we can interpret these passages just through the lens of our own personal experiences, particularly those negative experiences. And so a wife who's married to uh, an addict or to uh, a bully it may be suspicious of what this text may be saying to them, and, and I can understand that. Also, this goes against the grain of our culture. Um, I mean, and we're, we're, all, we're all just constantly breathing the air of that culture, and so we're, we're affected more than we realize. But if you affirm these things in almost any setting in the world, you might as well have like two horns coming out of your head because you'll seem so bizarre that, that, that it's, these, these verses and passages like this are seen as outdated and, and backward and idiotic and even dangerous. So there's that. And then, and then another is just, we talked about this before, we have this innate, um, uh, because of our fallen natures, we push back against any kind of authority and submission to authority. And that's true for all, every one of us. I have about 10 to 12 commentaries on First Peter. I'm not looking at them all every week, but if at some certain times I, I do look through many of them. They're sitting on my desk through this study. And of those, only one of them is written by a woman. Um, and and her, Karen Job, she's a professor at Wheaton College. It's an excellent commentary on First Peter. There's actually not that many commentaries, Bible commentaries, written by women. I'm not really, I mean, I understand because preachers tend to be the guys who write commentaries, but some of you, maybe this is a calling here. But she writes a very helpful commentary on First Peter. And one thing she noted is she's summarizing this section on First Peter. Very insightful throughout this section, throughout the, the letter. But she closes with these words. How ironic it is that the words that first century wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. And and I I think that's important because these words from Peter under the Spirit's inspiration are right in line with the whole purpose of this letter, which is a letter to give hope to weary pilgrims. 
And so here, these words to wives, these are hope to sojourning wives. That's what I I want you to think in that way. So this this would have been fresh air to their spiritual lungs as they they saw this and read this letter. And I pray that it will be to yours as well today. And so the structure of this passage... Let me just break it down real quick and then we'll, we'll begin to walk through it. So you have this little connection at the very first part of verse 1, this likewise. And so he's connecting it before. We'll come back to that. Then there's this command. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's kind of the overarching command of this passage. And then there's this specific kind of clarification and application. And he applies it to this specific situation that many of these Christian women and wives were in. They were married to unbelievers. Uh, unbelieving husbands, and I'll explain more of that in a minute. But these, these words apply to all Christian wives, but he's, he's addressing those unequally yoked marriages in particular. And then he's going to have some words to the husband, which we'll look at next week. And so, first, just that connection. Again, you don't, you don't want to study these words in isolation, as if, again, we're just kind of copy and pasting this out of a marriage manual or something like that. No, this is, this is part of a bigger context. There's this bigger appeal that's being made by Peter, under the Spirit's inspiration. So, you see that in verse 1, likewise. And so that, that's sending us back to something else. It's connecting us with what's gone before. And so, if you go all the way back and look in your Bibles, back to chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, this is where I think it, it's really going, where it begins. And so, those verses again say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh that war against your soul, And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so he's he's writing to Christians who are are, uh, exiles or sojourners. And this is what we are. We are not in our native country. We are citizens of heaven. This is not our home. We're passing through this world that often we find ourselves in opposition, uh, that, that this world is opposing us. And so as we live in this world as sojourners and exiles, we were to keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable. And so this, the hope from doing that is that, that these slanderers that call us evildoers, they will, they will become worshipers of God. And so from there, Peter begins to give these concrete instances and, and illustrations of what this beautiful, honorable conduct looks like. And so there's this overarching exhortation in chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he's going to give several examples. And so he talks about all Christians being subject to governing authorities in verse 13 to 17. And then Christian servants should be subject to their masters in verse 18 and following. And then he anchors the whole section in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's our, he's our perfect example of submission and suffering while suffering at the hands of unjust human authorities, ultimately entrusting himself and submitting to the Father's authority. And so all submission, this is true for not just for Jesus, but for us, all submission is ultimately vertical. We're submitting ourselves to God as the one who has placed those authorities over us. It's all for the Lord's sake. And then he and then he goes on, and, and, and so that's in verses twenty one to twenty three. He's this example to us, and he didn't revile when he uh, in return when he was reviled, and he didn't threaten when he suffered. And then and he's more than an example, though. He's his, his suffering was substitutionary. He he did this. He died for us so that we could actually do this, live this out. In verse twenty four, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. And, and so then we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, and we see this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So he's continuing this sequence. He's connecting it to Christ, his person, his work. And, and, and this is where we enter into this section. So I'm going to give my conclusion and my introduction here. So I'm going to make some statements. I was going to do this at the very end, and I've decided to front load it in the sermon. So just bear with me. And so, uh, so I want to say some preliminary remarks now of, of what this submission is, being subject to what it is, what it's not. And, and, and so first of all, let's talk about what it's not. First of all, submission is not just for women or for wives. Everybody has to submit to something. Life is unlivable if you're not submitting to something or someone. If you drive, you submit to stop signs, or at least I hope you do. If you, if you play music, you submit to notes, thankfully, or it would have been like chaos up here. If you write, you must submit to grammar. So we submit to all kinds of things, and that's true in, in all of life, but it's central to Christianity in particular. So when Peter says, wives submit to your husbands, he's not singling them out and saying, oh, you're the ones that have to submit. No, we, we, are all, we all submit in some way. Second, submission is not to all men in general. Notice he doesn't say, women, be subject to men. Or even wives, be subject to every husband, to every man. But wives, be subject to your own husbands. So it's not saying that just because you're female, you must submit to anyone who happens to be male. Um, I remember hearing this story, talking about this this, uh, this last year. There was a school that, that made it a requirement that if a, girl, if, a, if a boy asked a girl to dance at the school dance, the girl was required to say yes. Because you didn't want to hurt the feeling, the boys' feelings and them to be rejected. Oh, I know, it's so sad. I'm thinking, no, you do not have to say yes. I made that very clear to my own daughters. <laughs> I mean, you can be, I don't mean you'd be a jerk about it, but say, no, thank you. I mean, if some, so th- this is not women's submission to all men. That's not what he's talking about. Third, it's not giving up independent thought. Clearly, the, there, there were wives who disagreed with their husbands on the most important matter of all, faith in Christ. And so this was right for them to do. They, they, they thought about the gospel that they had heard proclaimed to them, and they, and they ended up departing from their husband's way of thinking and, uh, about Jesus Christ. And notice also, Peter speaking directly to these wives. He's not speaking to the husbands and saying, you know, pass this along to your wives. No, they, he's, he's expecting them to hear these things as they're read and, and to ponder them and to, to understand them and to, and to respond to God's word themselves. Fourth, submission is not avoiding any effort to influence her husband. Clearly in this passage, the goal, as we're going to see, and I realize we haven't walked through it yet, but the goal is that her husband will be one to the Lord. And so Peter's helping her to this end, not telling her not to do that. Fifth, submission is not putting the husband in the place of Christ. The whole context assumes allegiance, ultimate allegiance to Christ, Jesus, and that takes, takes priority over every other um, human allegiance. So it doesn't mean that the husband becomes an idol to be worshipped in the home. Sixth, submission is not giving in to every demand of the husband. If she's told to, jo- to, to, to join her husband in sin, she, she must say, 
I must obey God rather than man. And so, I mean, you, you, there, even that can be done respectful. Please, I love you. I, I want to submit to you. I want to follow your lead. Don't, don't ask me to do this that I can't follow you in. So, uh, an offshoot of that is, you, you, therefore, you, you, I know this is, there's so many rabbit trails and, and issues, and they're big, important questions. And if you have them, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. But submission cannot be used as a cover for abuse. And I know it has been many, many times. Abuse, addiction, criminal activity, immorality, infidelity. The wife doesn't just receive that and say that under this guise of submission. Submission, submission also doesn't mean you're passive in, in your marriage. You, you may not always agree with your husband, nor should you. Submission isn't your husband getting his way all the time. That's not the point. There are times when you need to offer your husband respectful pushback and feedback. There's a way to respond to him, a word choice and tone of voice and demeanor and posture towards him, just as husbands. I mean, I'm not saying that husbands don't need to have good word choice and posture and demeanor and tone of voice towards their wives. That's not my point. But in terms of being a submissive wife, then and, and you, you come and say, I trust your leadership. I, I, I want to be where you are on this. Uh, but I'm not there right now. Can we, can we pray about this? Can we talk about this some more? And, and the husband should say yes. And you, and you can still do this in a submissive way. Now, are there times when, when, the, when the husband has the, the burden of making a final call on a hard decision after much discussion and prayer and, and, and talking, and maybe there's still agreement? Yes, that time, that, that does happen on rare occasions uh, that you, must fi- you might finally have to come to a place where you say, Husband, honey, honey I, I trust you and I support you. And, but it's not just passively sitting back and offering nothing to the conversation and asking no questions and not thinking about it and not contributing anything. Seventh, submission is not, giving, or is not getting all her spiritual strength through the husband. So sometimes you hear things like, well, the husband is, is above the wife. He gets things from God and gives them to her. There is a vein of this teaching in the church today. And there's a... There's a particular circuit that this kind of runs in and that's just not biblical and what we see here is women are to hope in god this is what the example is going to be for us not depend upon your husbands for what god alone gives and so god is the direct source of their strength so that they don't have to fear anything verse six husband is not the mediator between the wife and god christ is and so so this is so don't think in that way eighth Two more. Submission is not based upon lesser competence or intelligence. So when we, when we hear words like submission, we're kind of uh, just set up to think in uh, superiority, inferiority, to think in those categories. And that's just not, it's not true. If I, so if I submit to you, that must mean somehow you're, you're above me or wiser than me or you're better than me or more gifted than me. But that's not, that's not the biblical teaching. They're complementing Differences between husbands and wives? Absolutely. There are differences between men and women, and they complement one another. But that doesn't imply superiority or inferiority. And last, related to this, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. So submission in regard to authority and role and function is perfectly consistent with equality in, in terms of importance and dignity and value and honor. And then the clearest and most profound example of this is God himself. It's the Trinity. So you see this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, 
Paul says, I want you to understand, and again, in the context of marriage, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and then listen, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what do we know about the Trinity, theologians? We, we know that there are these three persons of the, the Godhead, and they're co-equal, and they're co-eternal, equal in power and eternity in every, in every other way. And so there's this essential unity and mutuality and, and equality within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. But Paul says, the head of Christ is God, is the Father, so it, it can't be in essence or in, in nature or in value. It, it must be then in function. And so Christ who is co-equal with the Father in all respects, He submits from all eternity to do the Father's will. Not because He's inferior to the Father, but He's, but he's willingly submissive. He delights to do the Father's will. He's, his mutuality with the Father is undeniable. But His willing submission to the fa- Father is also it's very clear. And so that's the, that's the same kind of structure that's written into the fabric of marriage. Husband and wife are the same in nature, both equal before God in Christ. Both have the same access to God in Christ. But the wife, with no loss of dignity, takes the place of submission to the headship of the husband. In the same way that Christ, with no loss of dignity, takes the place of submission to the headship of his heavenly father. And so you have other passages that speak to this. Galatians 3.28, which is often used as a passage that's kind of pitted against 1 Peter 3 and other passages talk about the submission of the wife. That's not the point. But he says, "There there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But there's no tension between this and the call to wives to submit to their husbands. In 1 Peter 3, after making this call to wives, we're going to see this next week in verse 7, he's going to declare that husbands and wives are co-heirs of the, of, of the grace of life in Jesus. And so that's his way of, of saying, hey, there is neither male nor female. We are one in, in Christ Jesus. And so submission of, in role, in function, and equality, in dignity, in value, and importance, they walk hand in hand in the New Testament. All right, that's the conclusion. <laughs> well, we've said what it's not. Let me say what it is. And then we're going to really walk through the text. Uh, very simply, it's letting your husband take the lead. Um, P- John Piper, uh, he, he, he defines it this way. That, um, he's harmonizing First Peter 3 with other, other passages in the New Testament. He, he calls this the divine calling of a wife to joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership. And so it's making a choice to affirm your husband as leader within the limits of obedience to Christ. It includes this demeanor that honors him as leader, even when she disagrees with him. It's an attitude that, that goes deeper than mere, quote, obedience. That's, it's deeper than that. It's, but it's this idea of willing submissiveness to a husband's authority. All right. Conclusion, done. Long introduction, whatever you want to call it. Uh, let's let's get into the text here and, and say a few things. So the first thing, we'll say this, first three, three movements through here, and each of them uh, covering two verses. The first point is this. The sojourning wife preaches silently with her lovely life. The sojourning wife preaches silently with her lovely life. I'm borrowing those words from William Barclay. I'm, I'm changing them up. But 
the, the general exhortation again is that Christian wives submit to their husbands. Be subject to your own husbands. And then Peter has specific wives in mind when he elaborates on this. And so he, he's talking, and then he applies it to those, those who are married to husbands who do not obey the word. That's what the text says. And so he's not talking about Christian husbands who you know, just struggle with obedience to the Lord and they're you know, kind of flopping around and, and not really growing in the world. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about unbelieving Husbands, I, that's clear in the context of this letter. You, we saw this back in chapter two, seven to eight, that that obedience to the word is believing the gospel. And again, in chapter four, verse seventeen, I think that's clear in the context of the letter. So here's the situation you have in these in these churches that Peter's writing to some marriages that that you have a husband and wife are both Christians, but then you have some, perhaps many, where, where only the wife believes and the husband does not. So. Why is that important? Well, in this culture, the wife would by default worship her husband, husband's God or gods. She'd be expected to fall in line with whatever worship and sacrifices that he, he offered to the gods that he had. And so the gospel came and these wives believed the word and they obeyed that word, obeyed the gospel, which means they believed in Christ and their husbands did not. So she has this new God. She's now worshiping Jesus. And, and she's trusting in Christ alone. She's a Christian and she has these new friends, this new social network, and she's now part of the church. And so you can just imagine what that does and to, to, to this marriage in that particular context and this, the conflict that this would bring and the, and the cultural shame that this brought on the husband and the suspicion and the, and, and the confusion. And so Peter writes directly to these sojourning wives and says, there is hope for you. That's, what, that's, the, that's the point of this. Now, a little disclaimer. If you're not married, if you're dating or you're interested in dating or, or interested in marriage, this is not grounds to date a non-Christian. I want to be clear on that. Peter's writing to wives who were married first as unbelievers and then the gospel came into their home, and she believed, and the husband did not. So you have this unequally yoked marriage. But, but th- so this is not grounds for going, well, I'll just date anyone I want, and then later, um, you know, I, they, I can win them to the Lord. That, no, that's not, that's not the point. So Peter's right. He's writing to these wives who, who not only find themselves now exiled in the culture, like all Christians, but now they're exiled in their marriage, in their own home. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so the, the conduct emphasized here is a way of, of winning the husband. Again, without being able to go into a lengthy explanation, the, given the wider context, I think it's clear that this winning of the husband is winning them to the Lord. Because they're not, they're not obey the, they don't obey the word. And so this is, this is a general principle that was laid down back in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And now it's applied specifically to, to Christian wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And so how does, she, how does she win her husband? Two ways. Without a word and with her respectful and pure conduct. So without a word. What does that mean? How, how can a husband be one without a word? Just mute, just doesn't say anything. Well... This obviously doesn't mean that he doesn't need to hear the gospel. I mean, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Paul says in Romans 10, 17. And even in the context of 1 Peter, um, 
that we're born again, what? Through the living and the abiding word of God. And what is that word? It's the gospel, the good news that was preached to you, First Peter 1, 23 to 25. And so the husband can't become a Christian by hearing nothing, by knowing nothing, just by kind of watching the Christian wife's behavior and say, wow, I'm just, boom, a Christian now. That's not the point. He must know this news. He must know this word, this gospel. But how he comes to know it, we're not told, whether it's through the wife or whether it's through some other means. But, but I think what this means here, and what, what Peter is getting at is, is, is the husband is to be one without this excessive word, this pressured word. It's not that she can't talk about the gospel at all with her husband. No, but she doesn't need to, to be preaching at him all the time and pressuring him with this. He's cautioning, cautioning and encouraging these wives. Once he knows the gospel, however he learns it, it's your conduct that's going to make the most, the most powerful mark on him. And so that's the first thing. Without a word. Second, with respectful and pure conduct. Respectful literally means in fear. It's in phobos. We get our word phobia. And so it's, it's, it's very... We're told very clearly that, that we're to fear the Lord supremely. That's been throughout this letter. And that, and that governs then all our relationships. But as we fear the Lord, ultimately we, we respect the authority that God has placed over us. And so, wives are not to be afraid of their husbands. They're not to fear anything. We see in verse 6 that, that, that that's not it. Um, they're, to, they're to be lion-hearted, bold, courageous women. They're not afraid of anything that's frightening. Uh, because their hope is fully in the Lord. So it's not that, but it's, it's not being afraid of their husbands, cowering before them. It's, it's in light of God's supreme authority and the fear of the Lord. They, they, they respect those he's placed in authority over them, imperfect as they are. So it's respectful conduct, and it's pure conduct. It's honest, chaste, trustworthy, moral. That's the idea. These, the unbelieving husband says, man, I have a pure and trustworthy wife. So you can see that conduct. And so that's her, that's her first steps. Without a word, she, she's able to just kind of hand it off to God. He knows the gospel. I'm not going to keep, keep badgering him with it. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to hope in God. I'm going to fear God. I'm going to be a pure wife. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to be praying that he'll be one without a word. That's the posture of this, of this sojourning wife. Now I, le- I realize that there are some of you in this congregation, some of you um, believe in Jesus and follow him, but your husband doesn't, or your wife. And so it seems like it's like Peter's describing your own marriage. And listen, dear sisters and brothers, I, I know this is a hard road for you to be on at times. And that's not because your husbands are all bad people or something like that. You may have a uh, a very, very good man for a husband, and, and that's his common grace to you um, but he still needs the gospel and I and you know that more than anybody and that's a greater burden on your heart than it ever has been on mine but 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 Peter's saying there's there's hope for you there's hope for you um, and also don't think that if if your spouse is still an unbeliever that it's because you've failed or are failing I don't want you to hear that 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 don't don't think that the the reason he's not converted yet is because I've I've I'm I'm not silently preaching a lovely enough wife a life. That's that's not it. Salvation is of the Lord, and so keep praying, keep 
obeying what God has said and, and, and the, the calling. He's called you to this. It's his grace we saw uh, last week. And so uh, keep trusting him in the midst of that and praying for his salvation. Well, then Peter makes an interesting shift. He turns his focus now to how the wife dresses. And this is interesting. What, what in the world is going on with verses 3 and 4? Um, so let me just state the point this way. The sojourning wife adorns herself with true beauty. She adorns herself with true beauty. So verse 3, you have this, this negative statement. It's how not to adorn yourself externally. There are, there are these three things, hair, jewelry, and clothing. And then in verse 4, you have this, uh, this particle, but. The, 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 then he says the positive. This is how you're to adorn yourself internally. So verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and, or the clothing you wear. And why is he why is he even bothering taking space in this letter on something like this? What what is what does it have to do with helping wives win their husbands to the Lord um, by their conduct? Well, I think this is because many of these women were influenced by the culture, just as we are today. They said, Well, I need to I need to work to be pretty for him. I, I, I and if I can be pretty enough, maybe he'll keep me, maybe he'll listen to me. And Peter says, No. Don't, don't think about it like that. Don't, do, do focus on your adornment, but not that kind. And so, now listen. This is not an exhortation to ugliness or plainness or something like that. Is it to be as plain Jane as you can humanly possibly be? Um, do, does this mean that a wife shouldn't do anything with her hair, uh, put in braids or wear any earrings or necklaces or bracelets? No. This isn't a legalistic ban on a certain style of hair. I have four young ladies in my house, and, um, and there's a lot of braiding that happens of, of hair. Um, are they in sin? No. Is Brooke, because she's the only one that's a wife? No. Should you be nervous, shifting uncomfortably now, slowly kind of slipping off the gold bracelets and taking out the earrings and then taking the necklace and taking off the ring? Is any dress that wasn't purchased from a thrift store for, uh, you know, under $6 uh, sinful? I mean, there have been people throughout the centuries of the church who have built dogma upon 1 Peter 3.3. 3. And you probably know some of these groups. They, so they go around with their hair a certain way, if it's, it's, it's a spiritual hairstyle. And, and they never wear gold, and they only wear buy and wear drab clothes. And they think that that makes them commendable before the Lord. And now, if that's if that's how you choose to dress, that's it's just, that's my point. It's not about style, but don't don't base it upon uh, the exegesis of this passage. That's that's faulty. And so we we know that that's not what Peter's means by this, because the third thing he lists here is clothing. Now, some of your translators say maybe expensive clothing or something like that, but it's not. It just says clothing, not clothing. And so, if you, if you said these were absolutes, you'd have to say, well, absolutely no braiding of hair, absolutely no gold jewelry, absolutely no clothing. I don't think that's what Peter means. Um, I mean, if we, if we take this, the, if, we, if we try to force some wooden, literal interpretation here, 
you know, a wife could shave her head except for like two or three strands of hair and dye one of them purple and one, you know, bright pink and, and uh, you know, wear these massive silver earrings, you know, just big old things because they're not gold. And, you know, I mean, she can barely hold her head up and, you know, wear a burlap sack and, instead of, you know, clothes and say, well, man, she is perfectly obeying this passage. That's foolishness. So his point is don't let your focus be on your external adornment. I need to make sure my hair is just right. I'm using myself as an example, I realize. My jewelry is the latest and the most expensive and the most flashy and my clothing is the trendiest and most fashionable. Because my husband is watching and I want to win him. I want to win his affection. You want to win him to Christ. So he says, don't, don't focus on the adornment on the outside. Why? Why does, why does he say that? I, th- I think the answer is pretty clear. The world can do that. And they do that. And anything that the world can do is no clear witness to what only God can do. So this is why he says, don't put the focus there. That, that, and that's what the issue is in this marriage. What is it that only God can do? And this is where he turns. He says, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Focusing on adorning the hidden person of the heart. What, what's she supposed to do there? She cultivates this imperishable beauty. So it's hidden beauty. It's in the heart. It's imperishable beauty. Other types of adornment, they are perishable. The wife, as she gets older, external beauty begins to fade. And her clothing and her hair and her dress and her jewelry, they're not going to keep that process of aging away. But this beauty is, is imperishable. That's a big word in this letter. And what is it? It's this gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle, just it's not, not insistent on one's own rights, not pushy, not, not, not demanding one's own way. That's the idea of gentleness. And quiet doesn't mean that they're mute and they don't say anything, but just think of a tranquil tranquility, quiet river as opposed to a raging, tumultuous river. That's the idea. Does this mean you've got, you got to be shy? Is this a personality type? Men, do you need to marry somebody who's shy? No. It's displayed in all kinds of personalities, a gentle and quiet spirit. Some ladies are really funny and really loud, and, and they crack you up all the time. I've known plenty of these women, and I'm not going to say names, but some of, we have some in here, and they're outgoing, and they're demonstrative, and it's wonderful. It's how God's made you. And you, you may be tempted to believe that you can't, can't have this imperishable quality if you're of a gentle and quiet spirit. And that's not true. It's not being born naturally shy. That's not what he's saying. It's being so filled with the Spirit of God that irrespective of how God has made you and how He's gifted you and, 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 and what kind of woman He's made you to be, you, when you get to the essence of it, God is producing in your, in your life these qualities that are supernatural. This tranquility, this gentleness. Not... A, not, a, not demanding your own way that's something that the world can't reproduce the world can can do up the outside but it can't produce that that's something only god can do it's evidence of a heart that's being transformed by the gospel this is why it's such a witness to the husband and so this is also it's not just a witness to the husband it's very precious in god's sight um this is the husband can't see the hidden person of the heart god God can, and God says, this is precious, this is beautiful. Why? Why is it so precious to God? Because it's a result of her continual trust in God to supply all her needs. This is how she comes to be gentle and, and quiet. It's that she, she, and, and she trusts in God, and God delights in being trusted. So he says, this is beautiful. 
This is precious. Now the husband will see the overflow of that in her life as she, as she focuses on her heart, not her external appearance. But God sees it all. And so his point is, is just outward beauty must be subservient to the focus on internal beauty, true beauty, imperishable beauty, hidden beauty. I know the pressures from the culture, women's magazines and, the, and social media and television and music and, and, and advertising. Women are tempted to compare themselves against all of these images and to pursue them. Men are tempted to gauge their wives against uh, you know, these models and Young men are tempted to only to pursue ladies who look like these airbrushed uh, women on TV. And, and uh, so I know the pressures. And, but I, let me just maybe pause it. Fathers, if you, if you have daughters, we should praise our daughters for their inner loveliness. Tell the times when their inner beauty shines. Make much of that. Commend them when... when, when uh, for the lovely things that come out from within them. It's when you see these things, just commend them in them. I, it's not that we turn them into, you know, plain Jane, funny looking little creatures who just wear weird clothes and, you know, just strange people. But, but, but the, we put the predominant emphasis where Peter puts it here. What God puts it. We, we draw attention to husbands. Same thing. We do the same thing with our, our wives. Well, where, Peter, where does Peter go to provide a foundation for this argument that he's making here for these exhortations in verses 1 to 4 he doesn't look around at the contemporary culture and say you know like them no he goes he goes back he goes way back in redemptive history and he and he he goes back to sarah and to these other holy women who he goes back to holiness and the hope of these of these godly women he goes back to sarah's submission and obedience to abraham where he calls him lord he goes back to the fact that they did good and they didn't fear anything and so that brings us to the last movement and it's stated this way. The sojourning wife is full of hope and empty of fear. She's full of hope and empty of fear. This is an interesting way of making his case here. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Again, that same language of verses 3 to 4. By submitting to their own husbands. So these holy women, the adorning of gentle and quiet spirit, it results in the submission to their husbands. And then he gives Sarah as a specific example. She's the cover girl that all wives ought to look to. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and then he goes on, and you are her children, you're in her line, you're just like her if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When he says do good, it's not just be a good little wife. Do, do good means you know avoid doing the things that your husband doesn't like. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Positively, filling your life with good things. Good, beautiful things flowing from this new heart. This is what it should look like. And not fearing anything that's frightening. So, just quickly, let's put it all together. I think if you take the passage together, you say, first, what's foundational is these holy women, they hoped in God. They hoped in God. That's the root of it all. That's the key to this whole letter and this whole section. I belong first and foremost and always to God. I am His. He has caused me to be born again to this living hope. And I, am, I have been redeemed with precious blood. I am not ultimately my husband's. My destiny isn't determined by my husband. But I, but I am my God's. So I hope in Him. Jesus is this perfect example that, again, that flowed right into this passage of entrusting Himself to God. 
So this is what this this is what the holy women did. This is what well, Christian wives must do. You first, it's I hope in you, God. Draw strength from you. And that leads then to this fearlessness, this courage, not not fearing anything that's frightening, not not fearing anything but God. So you have this combination of this gentle, meek, quiet spirit, tranquil spirit, and this bold as a lion courage. What a wonderful, beautiful combination. And then, and so this wife hopes in God and it leads to this fearlessness and then it spills out into the, this life that's full of good deeds. It's not, a, it's not a couch potato, not just spending her days, you know, watching, you know, binge watching TV on Netflix. She's, she's out, she's active, she's making the world a different place by her good deeds. She's serving, loving, showing hospitality. She's, she's involved, helping we walkers. She's doing stuff. She's, she's, she's doing good deeds. And, and the husband sees himself as the greatest beneficiary of this. This unbelieving husband. And then that leads again to this life that's marked by, by respect and pure conduct and submissiveness. And so this is, that's, that's, the, that's the whole thing in a package. Now, I know when Peter says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, uh, we, we get little questions. What is, what is that about? You know, just quickly. If you remember anything about Abraham's and Sarah's relationship, there's only one instance that you could really point to and say where she obeyed um, Abraham. And it's not pretty. Um, there, there's this one instance, Abraham went down to Egypt and he tells Sarah, hey, you need to lie about the fact that you're my wife. If not, I'm going to get killed. And so she does, and she ends up being taken into the harem of Pharaoh. Good grief. <laughs> And so I don't think Peter's looking to that as a model. Now, way to go, Abraham and Sarah. This is what we want. This is the ideal here. No, that was a despicable thing for Abraham to do. And so in the fact that she complied, it's not the kind of compliance Peter's wanting us to admire and hold up as an example. But Because if if God is the woman's hope and he is her supreme Lord, she will never follow her husband into sin. And this was sin because her other Lord... The Lord says, be holy, don't lie, don't sin, don't commit adultery. So I think that instance where, with Sarah where she's taken into the harem, and it may have been something, Peter, he's not considering that admirable. So what does he do? He, he says, she called him Lord. Now, it's not that Sarah walked around saying, oh Lord, shall I massage your tired feet, you know, hallowed master and that's not, that's not it at all. There's, there's one place in Genesis where this happened. It's in Genesis 18, 9 to 12. And uh, we just have to have summarized. But you know the story. The Lord comes to Abram, tells him that he's going to have a child. And he and, and, and Sarah are old and way past childbearing years. And Sarah's uh, kind of listening through the curtain and, and doesn't know. And, and the text says that she laughed to herself saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's it. That's the, that's the scene, I guess, that, that Peter seems to have in mind. It's the only place where, where, where it's recorded that Sarah ever called Abraham Lord. And in the context, it's kind of just a throwaway statement. It's just under, his, under her breath. Now, I will say, we tend to speak the, the, the most truth of our hearts under our breath, not what we say. It's not what we always, always say out loud. And I think that's the point. Her, her default heart is to speak respectfully of her husband, by using this culturally appropriate, my Lord, I realize that doesn't translate into our context, but it's just a term of respect. It was common. Even when she thought nobody heard her. In the quietness of her own heart, she had such regard for Abram that he said, my Lord, 
my main man. That's the idea. So Peter chooses to say, Sarah's a good example of the kind of submission I'm talking about. Not because she obeyed Abram when they went down to Egypt and lied about being his wife, when she was just off the cuff of saying, my Lord. And I think that's the point here. Let a heart of submission in a wife and respect for a husband be so natural, so default, so normal to the wife's heart that, that her natural way of speaking to him is one of respect and about him. In that culture, it may have been my Lord and ours, it would be in other ways. Well, what does this look like? I, I just say this. We may, I may come back to this more next week. I, I, we want to get to the table. I, I would just say submission may be worked out in hundreds of different ways, and it's going to be looked different in different marriages. I'm not saying the, the scriptures are our guide and we submit to their authority, but, but I, I don't, we don't want to impress upon this rigidity of some man-made, this is exactly what it looks like in every situation, in every home. So just take note of that. And then the other thing I would say is that when the submission of the wife, and I've seen this, when the submission of the wife becomes the central issue in a marriage, the image of Christian marriage is already distorted. That's not the end all, the focus of everything. It is important, and we see, and we don't want to be embarrassed by it. It's a beautiful thing. This is, this is something that ought to be fresh air to our to the to the lungs of every wife in this room every christian wife no matter what kind of husband you're married to this is this is to be your encouragement but this is not the focus of everything the focus is on jesus christ that's got to be it and so we're going to come and we're going to come to the table in just a moment and this is this is what this is where our eyes need to be to be drawn um, now let's pray together Lord, we're going to sing these words that, that our worth is not in what we own. Um, that, Lord, our value, our boast, our joy, our worth, our identity, it's rooted in Christ and what He accomplished through His death and resurrection. And so that's what we want to remember as we sing, as we come to this table in a moment. And I pray that every... Uh, every wife here today who may find great joy in this passage or maybe who's still struggling and trying to think this through and what does this look like in my life and in my context, I pray that that, uh, their eyes will be drawn up to Jesus and that the gospel of Christ, the good news of what you've done uh, by your death and through your resurrection, that that would be what infuses life and and hope and joy and into the to marriages of this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.